Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. For those of you stumbling across the show randomly, welcome. Uh, I'm a writer and editor on Comics XF and a lifelong Batman fan. And that's barely hyperbole. I read my first comic with Batman at the age of five. That was only after already loving the character on Super Friends and reruns of Batman 66. And joining me is my co-host, Will Nevin. Say hi to the folks at home, Will. Hi to the folks at home, Will. <laughs> yeah, you can already tell he's the funny one. Uh, so what's, And the pretty one. Yeah. <laughs> so what's your uh, history with Batman, Will? Well, strangely enough, uh, Batman was one of the first comics that I got into, but it's not the Batman you might be thinking of. Uh, a couple of years ago, I decided I was going to get in shape. I was going to go to the gym. I was going to do way too much cardio. And I wanted something to do when I was on the treadmill. So I thought, I've, I've read enough books. Let me try some comics. I stumbled into Batman 66, and I loved it. So I, I have not been in the comics game that long. Uh, but, man, uh, that is just a classic contemporary comic for my mind. And then, obviously, it's, it has spiraled uh, from there. For those out there who are not longtime Batman fans, this actually gives two very different perspectives on some of these stories. In a lot of cases, I'll have read them multiple times, and this might be Will's first for some of them, so it'll be an interesting thing to see. Um, So you may be asking, what exactly is this show? Well, inspired by Battle of the Atom, the podcast hosted by Comics uh, XF editor-in-chief Zach Jenkins and his co-host Adam Reck, that is ranking every X-Men story ever, I thought, you know, that format would work for Batman stories too. So each week, Will, some guests, and I will be digging into three Batman stories. One will be a tentpole seminal work, and in most cases, one of the other two will be a story from before 1986 and the Crisis on Infinite Earths, and one will be post-crisis. The connection to these stories may be a character, a theme, a plot point, or a creator. We'll rank these stories on an ever-expanding list of Batman stories. I can't promise all the stories will be good. They probably won't be. But I hope the show is fun for you and for us. Uh, So today's theme is pretty on the nose. It's beginnings. These are stories that are origins or early tales of the Dark Knight. And the first story we'll be covering, the first of those seminal Batman stories, is Batman Year One. Uh, This story was originally published in Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. The writer is Frank Miller. The artist is David Mazzuccelli. Colors are by Richmond Lewis. Letters by Todd Klein. And the editor is Denny O'Neill. I've done my best to get the name pronunciations correct, but if I've gotten them wrong, I'm sorry. And if you're the creator, please reach out and correct me. It's the absolute hardest thing in comics. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, not at all. And it really is. And uh, correct me, and then we can talk about Batman. Uh, Starting with this story also lets us start with, I don't think it qualifies as a disclaimer, but as something that needs to be addressed. Comics have a long history of problematic stories and problematic creators. And you can go about this, dealing with this in one of three ways. You can either 
not cover the books by problematic creators. You can ignore the fact that they're problematic and cover them like they're anything else, or you can address it. And so we're going to address the fact that sometimes we're going to have a book with a problematic creator. Uh, this one right out of the gate uh, is written by Frank Miller, a writer who's written a couple of the really absolutely legendary Batman stories, but whose recent works have leaned much more heavily into misogyny and rampant Islamophobia. Uh, we're going to do our best to cover these books as if they're just the art and not let the fact that some of these creators are really not great people. But even if we can do that, we need to mention that out of the gate. So now that that is out of the way, Will, how did you like Batman Year One? This is one of the stories that I, I have read before, and and coming back to it is just so so wonderful because it represents, I think, to me, the epitome of a just a great Batman story. I, I know people out there, some people out there somewhere. Uh, swear by Dark Knight Returns, like, and that has certainly entered the great uh, comics canon. But put these two books side by side, read your one, and you're going to think, why did I ever waste time reading Dark Knight Returns? Like, it is a weird book. It is a fun Reagan-era book. Sure. But Batman Year One is just the best core story. It defines Bruce, it defines Gordon, it defines Batman, and it's not a complicated story, but so many of those classic elements are there. And it, they are elements that many writers, one that we will maybe get to today, tend to just either ignore, or they overwrite, or they overcomplicate. And it doesn't have to be that complex. And yet in year one, we're dealing with basic elements and we're dealing with a real adult story. And that's, that's another thing that I really like about this. This is not some silly science fiction story. It doesn't have monsters. It has a cop who's trying to do good, who, quick question, is this an adult podcast or not? Yes. Oh, good, good. We have a cop who fucks up and who knows that he's fucked up and he's still trying to do right, even though, you know, he's, he's saddled with all of his guilt with his, with his marriage. And I, that story is so relatable. And yes, it does have a crazy billionaire dressed up as a bat. Um, but still it's one that is very grounded and, you could see why Christopher Nolan trying to make basically an adult Batman film. You could tell why he takes so much uh, from year one in Batman Begins. And, and even the, the same sensibilities carry over at the Dark Knight. The less said about Rises, the better. Um, but gosh, I would read year one again tomorrow. 
it just, it feels so good. It's like, it's the comfort food of Batman stories. Year one, for those of you who haven't read it, and I probably should have done this before Will spoke so eloquently on it, is a parallel narrative with two narrators. Half the story, actually probably a little more than half the story, is narrated by Jim Gordon, who's just arrived in Gotham from Chicago. And the other half is narrated by Bruce Wayne, who has just returned from to Gotham from his travels around the world to train to be Batman. It's a very street-level story. There is only one other costumed character in the story who only appears briefly, and one reference to another sort of classic Batman, not even sort of, the a major classic Batman character, but that's on the next to the last page of the book. It is... For me, I am in complete agreement, and someday Will and I will disagree on things, but on this one, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not going to, because this is the superior of the two legendary Miller books to me. This is stunning to look at. It, it would have still been a great book if Miller had decided to draw it in the style that he had at the time, not the sort of big blown out, you know, Sin City, Dark Knight Strikes Again style. But Mazzucchelli kills this book. It Dead. Yeah. It is absolutely gorgeous to look at. It's intricately paced both from the story and from the art. And it wouldn't have worked without both of them. And for a four-issue story, a lot happens. And it's been a couple of years since I'd read this again. Just reading it again, I had forgotten how packed in each issue it was. It was like, oh wow, all the stuff with Gordon and Essen is really only in the la- in the mi- middle of issue three through the beginning of issue four. I felt I thought that was something that had been throughout the entire book but it still feels like these things are seated for much longer but they're each scene packs such a punch that it feels like it's longer in a good way i mean because believe me i've read comics that oh god this thing feels like it's way longer than it is but no there's so much character and in each page that it feels like this is four issues tightly compressed without it feeling like like it's got that Stan Lee wall of text that you can get. The writing is so tight. It's so just, again, I, I can't say enough good things about it. And the concept plays out so well. Like it is literally the first year of Batman. And you get these dates throughout the four issues. The, the dates don't mean anything specifically, but, you know, you go from one panel, it's like, oh, February 3rd. The next, you know, five panels later, it's March 28th. Like, you get a real sense that time is passing, and you can put all of these events kind of in context and in that chronological order. You're not confused as you go from scene to scene to scene. You're just like, oh, this is the passage of time like and it just 
it's it's a simple concept, but again, it works so well. And if somebody tried to do it today, I, I imagine it would feel tired, it would feel played out. But to have been in that time, in that place, and reading those four issues as they came out, man, that would have been something. Yeah, this was a few years before I started reading regularly, so I was I was not a reader at the time, but I. As you said, I wish I would have been. And Miller introduces a handful of characters who become much more important to the Batman mythos, but they all feel like they have been there for longer. And they all, you come out of the book feeling like you know them more. I had forgotten that you could probably count the number of panels the roman appears on in on both your hands and your feet but that that mob boss he's such a memorable character it's like no wonder uh, he became this major figure in the long halloween and was a featured character in batman begins and in the first two or three seasons of gotham i mean he is a much more interesting mobster than these sort of very generic mobsters of classic Batman comics. And you couldn't tell the difference between uh, Sal Maroney, who messed up Harvey Dent's face, and Tony Zuko, who killed Dick Grayson's parents from their early appearances because they were very generic characters. It's only later on in stories after year one that these characters are given something more interesting to be and that's i think a lot to do with miller making uh falcone if you know him from the movies and that where he's not addressed as the roman uh makes him a really interesting character who's also not just a knockoff vito corleone which would have been an easy trick to do. And that might be have to do with Mazzucchelli making him look different, making him look this sort of slick silver fox kind of character. Now, you talk about Miller doing good things with, uh, with some of these characters. Uh, we have to talk about Catwoman. In this yeah. Um, she, her first depiction is as a prostitute. And to my eye, she doesn't really add a whole lot to the story. She's she's a minor character. She kind of passes in, passes out. It's it's interesting, but I think we get more than a little taste of that misogyny we were talking about earlier without basically any insight into the character or any contribution to the larger story. Absolutely. This is a complete departure from Selena's pre-crisis origin, which was weird and messy and involved amnesia and is not a great origin as Batman villains go, but rewriting it into this very stereotypical prostitute who's the friend of the taxi driver-esque, Jodie Foster-esque prostitute in Holly who is written equally problematically. Neither of us are throwing shade or having any problem with sex workers. It's specifically how it is presented 
in this book with a Stan the Pimp who is an absolute painful stereotype, more so than even Selena or Holly are. And it's, it's a very Miller thing. If you've read any Sin City, Miller has a whole thing with sex workers that is really weird and really uncomfortable. Yes. And it, it is not helped here. It'll be interesting when we get to Mindy Newell's Catwoman miniseries that tries to take this whole thing more seriously and follows up on year one with Stan and Holly. It's, again, another story. It's been uh, years since I read, but it's it tries to do something with that to make it more three-dimensional that Miller absolutely does not do in this book. I want to ask you a really random question, and maybe it's my digital copy. Maybe it's me not understanding what they were trying to do. Holly's lettering seems to have some strange emphasis on it. Did you get that? Yes. Yes. And it's, I read this digitally again because it's the DC Universe Infinite app is really convenient for some of this stuff when I don't have to dig out either my trade or the floppies that I tracked down at one point or another. But I've never understood the fact that Holly seems to punch middle or end syllables in her dialogue in ways that don't make a whole lot of sense. Very strange. Yeah, and it I, must be intentional and it must not be a printing error. No, it's not. And it's it's something I feel must have been in Miller's script because Todd Klein, the letterer, is a legend. This is not a guy who makes weird arbitrary choices. So I have to imagine Miller had something in the script somewhere. It, it's, it's something I would love to ask Todd Klein about someday if I ever get the chance to interview him. The other characters, just to, to briefly talk about it, the only other character with history with Batman that appears in this book is a brief cameo by Harvey Dent. I love the fact that Miller brought in Dent because Two-Face, for the, the first appearance of Harvey Dent back in the day is the first appearance of Two-Face. This isn't a character that had a, a backstory as part of Batman's supporting cast who became a villain. So putting that in there, it sets up, A, it sets up what they did in Batman the Animated Series. It sets up the the Long Halloween, which is a, a, a Harvey Dent story as much as a Batman story. It sets up another great year one era story called Eye of the Beholder that we're going to be getting to at some time in the not too distant future. But I like that they it makes Dent more of a character. Also, I'm always surprised going back and reading this as a description because there is one other character, but he barely appears. How little Alfred is in this book. He only appears at the beginning and then towards the end. There's not a ton of Alfred in here. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're going to get to this. Uh, Snyder certainly has a different take in terms of Alfred's involvement. Reading back over it, it didn't strike me, I think, as too strange. Um, I, I thought part of the dialogue was a little contrived uh, in that we have, you know, that classic scene, you know, where he says, Father, I shall become a bat. You have gifted me a butler with combat medical training. It's like, eh, 
that's you know a little too convenient there. Miller also loves his contrived internal monologues. There is a line in the Sin City arc, uh, the Yellow Bastard, that was put into the movie and I'm not going to get it exactly right but I saw the Sin City film in the theaters and this moment where uh, Bruce Willis's Hardigan is narrating and he's comforting the Nancy the the stripper who he's protecting from the titular yellow bastard and he's says something to the effect of I'm not good at comforting people I'm like a neurosurgeon uh, performing brain surgery with a chainsaw and the line isn't supposed to be funny, but the entire theater just absolutely cracked up. And that is what you often get when Miller really tries to dig into those noir sounding dialogues. It doesn't really fly. No, uh, but the, of course, the dinner party scene is magnificent. Yes, that is a definitive Batman moment and was never referenced anywhere else. It was never <laughs> referenced anywhere else. Uh, uh, look, you know, we're going to have to read that eventually. We I, are, I, but I, for now. I've, I've already read it. Um, it, is, it is terrible, and Kevin Smith can fuck himself. Yeah, for that, for that one, absolutely. The, Fuck himself or piss his pants, whatever he wants to do. Ugh. His call. One other thing that struck me really with this reading that I, I'm sure, again, it's one of these things I'm sure I've noticed it before because I've read this story a dozen times over the years, is that the final big action set piece of the story, it's a Batman bit, but he's not in costume. It's an, it was a really interesting choice to me to be like, okay, you have to set this during the day. And I mean, it establishes the fact that he doesn't wear the costume during the day. There's a bit of dialogue with Alfred specifically about that, but it grounds that last scene in a little more reality. And it's, again, Mazzucchelli kills that scene, the, the bridge and... Uh, Johnny Vitti, the Roman's nephew, who I don't think is ever actually named in this book, but he is named when he pops up again. So it's one of these things where I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah that, that's that guy who's the, the first victim in the long Halloween. And the art choices there are so smart because we don't see Bruce's face just like Barbara and Jim don't see his face. That, that's like, that's a fucking smart play right there. It absolutely is. And there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, there's the SWAT assault, various bits with Gordon and the other members of the GCPD, uh, Commissioner Loeb and Lieutenant Flass, who are just, their characters ripped right out of a noir. These absolutely broken, crooked as the day is long cops. And the SWAT commander, Brandon, who... It strikes me as so interesting. Miller, who his the, his modern work is so in line with that post 9-11, oorah, America, you know, let's kill all them Muslims. But this book is really 
very anti-police and anti the militarization of the police. The way the Gotham SWAT team operates is horrifying. One guy tries to shoot a cat, and that's always a way to get on my bad side. And and it doesn't go unnoticed by Gordon. Uh, he said, well, Batman tried to save the cat. He tried to save the old woman. This guy is this guy is a good guy. My partners, you know, everybody else in the force, maybe not. Um, one final point I want to make in here, and this we can use this as a comparison point. I love how Gordon deals with his crooked partner in this story. The next one we're going to take up, the, the sort of the retelling of this, it's very passive. It's very, I don't know. I don't know a better word other than to say passive. You know, Gordon, of course, wants to always do the right thing. His partner says, oh, no, you're, no, you're not going to. And he, he basically orders a code red. He orders a code red on Gordon. And Gordon says, like, all right, okay, that's how we're going to play it. Gordon, <laughs> for those of you who haven't read it out there, I'll spoil it for you uh, and tell you to go read it. Um, Gordon basically um, gets him alone in the woods, beats him, strips him naked, and leaves him handcuffed. And that's how he deals with it. And I'm like... That's a man not to be trifled with. And I like that. And gives Flass a baseball bat while he's unarmed to make it at least close to a fair fight. That is probably second only to the banquet scene as my favorite scene. So we'll we'll rank this story. And I mean, let's be honest, we all, it's the first story. So it's number one, one way or the other. But this will probably have a long reign at number one on this list. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to have to be pretty damn good to unseat your one. So, and now we're going to move on to another origin of Batman story. Uh, this one is Zero Year. This is Batman Volume 2, issues 21 to 27, and 29 to 33. 28 was an interlude issue that tied into the then about to start Batman Eternal weekly series. This is a year, so you're going to have to bear with me on the creators on this one, everybody, because it's a long one. Uh, the writer on the main story is Scott Snyder. Penciler is Greg Capullo. Inker is Danny Miki. Colors by FCO Plasencia. Uh, letters by Nick J. Napolitano and Steve Wands. Uh, editors, Mike Martz, Katie Kubert, Mark Doyle, and Matt Humphreys. There are various backups throughout, uh, written by Snyder and James Tiny in the fourth, with art by Raphael Albuquerque and Andy Clark, uh, colors by Dave McCaig and Blonde, letters by Taylor Esposito and Desi Cienti, and editors uh, by are Kubert and Martz. For a year-long story, this was actually divided up into three chapters. Secret City, which was three parts. Dark City, which was five. And Savage City, which was four. Uh, this was the origin of Batman in the New 52, the DC 2011 reboot that sort of rebooted the DC universe and sort of didn't. The Batman titles were affected less than other books, but it still seemed like they want Snyder wanted to, as the sort of head of Bat at the time, wanted to tell his own origin of Batman story. And so did it in this particular year-long epic 
that involves the Red Hood and Dr. Death and the Riddler and homages to many Batman stories from across the years. Where do we where do we start with this one? I mean, it's it is not a bad story by any stretch. There's a lot of good in here. I I think it partially did suffer by reading it directly after year one. This is a 12 part story that probably it probably could have been shaved to eight and tell the exact same story and probably could have been knocked down to six by removing a couple of the plot threads that were sort of all over the place. Cause there's a lot in this story that's like, Oh, well, that's kind of neat, but we got drawn away from the main narrative to give this side plot, Dr. Death being kind of the big one. I mean, that's an intentional cause he's the first named supervillain that Batman ever fought. So it's an intentional nod to that he is by far the least interesting villain in this story and takes up four issues of plot as sort of the main antagonist. And he is not a villain that feels particularly real. And I will agree with you, this is not a story to read directly after year one, because the whole time you're thinking like, all right, the story could be tighter, the writing could be tighter. Uh, Dr. Death looks neat, um, but it's not what I want to see after reading year one. It's a, so it's a little bit unfair, uh, but I certainly, I, again, this is fat chat agreement hour. It's, it's too much. It's too long. It has some interesting things to say. Maybe some things that I would not take my Batman story in. I don't like to see Bruce and, um, Gordon fighting like I don't like that that relationship should be interesting it should be complex but I don't want to see a lot of antagonism there and especially where it's like where we get that Batman versus Superman moment it's like oh it was just a misunderstanding oh they were really on the, the same page the whole time I understand now yeah some of the interesting things here that I and it's one of the it's a moment or an idea that I'm not sure if Snyder, Scott Snyder, it is important that we are not talking about Zack Snyder here in any way other than that one Batman versus Superman reference, because they're they're completely different. Snyder introducing the concept of the Red Hood gang before Bruce became Batman. I'm not sure if it's intentionally standing against the second worst old saw of bad hot bat takes that Batman creates all these villains so why is he continue to do it with the Red Hood gang existing already it establishes that the freaks are already becoming part of Gotham and Batman is as much a reaction to them as to the rest of crime in Gotham I'm not 100% sure how much I love it but I like that it stands against that particular bad hot take the, the worst bat Hot take, by the way, is the absolutely played to death. Bruce Wayne doesn't do anything for Gotham City and just beats on the poor and mentally ill. We will be reading many stories over time that show exactly what Bruce Wayne does for Gotham and how important his part in the city is. What do you feel about Red Hood One, who is 
obviously the Joker. I mean, we know that the Joker was the Red Hood before he was the Joker. The one bit of the Joker's origin that we know as a concrete fact is that, in the comics at least. For me, it's an interesting because it's a very different take on the Red Hood as he was in his previous iterations i'm not even talking killing joke i'm talking in those early stories where he was just a crook this is very much setting the anarchist joker of modern batman comics in stone you're not going to get a joker who ever did the laughing fish bit because that's the joker trying to make money and the mad that the anarchist of red hood one is not that joker he has no interest in making money he's there for the chaos and to show society what it is which is an aspect of the joker but has become the one aspect of the joker that everyone focuses on since at least the dark knight and frankly a little predating that with morrison's take on the joker but morrison's take on the joker was this malleable character who could suddenly decide to do something else Morrison just wrote him as this more anarchic figure. And we've had this discussion before talking about, uh, you know, the Joker in our print bat chat, audio free format. Uh, Joker is more interesting when he's more analytical, when he's got a touch more Hannibal Lecter than, you know, zany anarchy with, you know, a touch of that comedy too. So getting ready for this, I, I, I picked up the trade and the trade just has that, those last two chapters. So I didn't reread um, the first chapter, but I do remember that from reading it ages and ages ago. So yeah, it's, it's the first day of school and I've already screwed up the homework. Uh, <laughs> could go on me. I think a lot of that is colored with Snyder's vision of the Joker. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, it was Snyder who had, you know, the Joker cut off his own face, right? Was that, that was him. That, there are questions about that. It was in an issue of Detective, but it was in Detective Comics, number one of the New 52, which was written by Tony Daniel. But I have this feeling like that was a Snyder beat that Daniel got to use the Joker first because... Snyder was doing Court of Owls and there was no place for the Joker and they I'm sure editorial wanted the Joker in a bat book right out of the gate so I've I've always wondered and I, I would have to I'm sure it's out there in some interview or another whether Snyder fed that to Daniel or Daniel came up with it but Snyder's the one who played with it most with Death of the Family yes so yeah that that does feel again I like his vision which you know is maybe not necessarily mine, but God bless him. Yeah, it's, it is a valid interpretation of the Joker, if not mine. His Joker is very much the Joker who is in love with Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, in, I'm not saying that in a slashy or sexual way. It might be, but I've always more viewed the Joker as asexual, that sex for him is about power. It's not about any kind of romance. So the Joker being in love with Batman is not a sexual thing. It is a you complete me thing. Miller is the one who started that in Dark Knight Returns. But his Joker was about as flaming as you can get without it 
being absolutely right there on the page. And it, I mean, it is right there on the page, but it's, I mean, he calls Batman darling repeatedly, but Snyder really takes that because the Joker is obsessed with nothing more than Batman in his interpretation of the character. And you get the seeds of that in zero year with how fascinated the red hood one becomes with the vigilante who he realizes at the last minute, right before he dives into the vat of chemicals is Batman. I will give Snyder some credit. Having read that first chapter, there are a couple of little, and it might actually be the red hood plot wraps up in the first part of chapter two in the first part of dark city did you pick up right after that or did you get any of the red hood stuff in your rereading they make some mentions to what happened at ace chemicals okay and and there is there is some mention of it i know okay so no you because theoretically i think they broke it up differently for the trades they broke it up as four four and four in the trades which makes a lot of sense but the Technically, Dark City begins at part four because that's when the Riddler causes the blackout. But there are lines in that where Red Hood One talks about the last time Gotham had a hurricane before the hurricane kicks off in this story. There's a line about Bruce has about Red Hood One having an end game, which is, Whoa. yeah, Snyder had good chunks of his run already plotted out and i have to go back and reread the the last bit of his run but i'm fairly certain that the dr death formula is you is what mr bloom uses as their bodies both have that weird contortion and there is a line that dr death has about waiting for his formula to bloom little easter eggs and nods to other things there's nods to the court of owls there are runs of Batman long form runs that feel like the writer didn't have it all planned out from beginning to end and sort of had to come up with stuff. I feel like Snyder had at least a lot of his beats already planned out beginning, middle and end. And there weren't a ton of editorial changes. I think a lot of his stuff went through as he intended. And, you know, we've, or at least I, I know I've, I've mentioned this to you as I was re, uh, rereading this and looking over Snyder's tenure. He really only had a handful of stories. They were longer stories. You know, uh, it feels like uh, in the current issue uh, or the current run, you know, an arc might be five issues of a double shipping book. And that just, you know, gets over and done with almost as, you know, as, the story ends as almost as, as, as soon as it begins. But this was, as you said, you know, Dear Year was a year-long story. Court of Owls was a long story. And then it's Endgame. Yeah. I mean, De Death of the Family and Endgame are six issues each with Zero Year breaking them up and a couple of one-offs here and there. But it's a 12-issue Court of Owls story, a 12-part Joker story that's broken up by Zero Year in the middle, and the Jim Gordon Bat Bunny armor arc that yeah. is the last 10 issues. And the last two issues aren't Snyder. They're Tinyan, I think Tinyan, just doing a little, you know, house cleaning before the King arc starts. So, yeah, it's really just 
four stories told over the course of 50 issues. The one, the major, well, there's a couple of major bits we haven't talked about, but one of them, how do you feel about Snyder's Riddler? Hmm. The, uh, the visual design is a little weird. Um, I guess somebody had to try to bring mutton chops back. I, I thought that between that and then when he pops up again in the King run, when he still has the mutton chops and has the unbuttoned shirt with the, the question mark, he really just looks like a pickup artist. This guy <laughs> screams like Riddler has read one too many of mysteries books on how to impress the ladies and neg them. It's like, Oh, Eddie. Oh, Eddie. You know, I, I think, I think Snyder had interesting things to say about Joker. Uh, Mr. Freeze, I thought, I remember reading the original, or, or Snyder's like original uh, run. I forget where he, he brings up Freeze. It, but, the uh, Batman Annual One is, yeah. a, is a Freeze story. And he pops up a little bit in Court of Owls, but just briefly. But he makes that subtle shift in Freeze from being... Uh, this doting husband to just being someone who is obsessed with someone. And that is, a, that was a real shift. And it's like, Whoa, that, that recontextualizes so much. And, and it takes him from being this, you know, quasi tragic figure to just being a weirdo. Um, For good and ill. Yes. And, but with his Riddler, I, I just, it doesn't do a lot for me. It's, he's just kind of there. Doing Riddler stuff. Riddler is, and I, I'm pretty sure Paul Dini said this in an interview somewhere. Riddler is the hardest Batman villain to write because everything he does has to pay off. It's he more than any other Batman villain requires it to be a Playfair mystery because if the Riddler's riddles don't work, then it's not a Riddler story. But also, it can't just be this guy writing riddles, because that's dull. Just sitting there, Batman sitting at a desk looking at, you know, paper isn't a superhero story. And that is more than anything. This is a big old superhero story for 12 issues. Year one is a crime comic with a guy in a bat suit. Year one, zero year is a gigantic gigantic superhero story with set pieces and blimps and a no four issues it becomes no man's land for four issues and you've got cameos by the penguin and poison ivy and lucius fox is there and there's a lot of alfred and speaking of adversarial there there's a moment where alfred flat out slaps bruce across the face and bruce raises his hand to alfred and that bothers me that because you know, maybe Alfred kind of giving Bruce a little slap upside the head lovingly, maybe. But Bruce would never raise his hand to Alfred. And Alfred would not slap him across the face like, you know, he's a petulant child. This is that is not the way their relationship works. Oh, I will say Capullo's art is stellar throughout. It's not. It's not, I mean, Mazzuccelli's art is, I keep pronouncing it both with Mazzuccelli and Mazzuccelli, and I'm never sure which is right, and I bounce back and forth. I need to pick a lane, picking Mazzuccelli and running with it. Uh, Mazzuccelli's art is gritty and is, is grounded. Capullo's art is huge, and his design, the, the 
growing gnarled Dr. Death as he becomes this monster is a cool visual. And the way he draws Gotham under the Riddler's sway after the Riddler takes over the city is really very cool to look at. And I'll give him a lot of credit for all of that. I do wonder why they didn't use Flass as a character. Because Gordon's partner here is a character named Dan Corrigan. And Corrigan, as a name of a Gotham cop, has particular connotations that I don't understand why he decided to, oh yeah, this guy must be the Spectre's grand nephew or something. (laughs) Or the brother of that sleazy guy that shot Chris Allen in, in Gotham Central. But I, it's kind of, you know, oh, okay, he just decided not to use the established crooked partner for Gordon. Yeah, I, I, I assumed that that was some kind of intentional nod. Uh, it had to be, or else it was a really weird choice. I, I think it was just Snyder winking at the camera with the, the, the Spectre reference with Gotham cops named Corrigan, as there have been numerous over the years. It's the only thing I've ever come up with as an answer for that and it struck me as a little unnecessary when you already have a fairly well known at least in if you want to do a wink at the camera flash is a great wink at the camera because because Loeb is there already and in a very different looking Loeb porcine red-nosed politician of year one versus the more svelte still more politician-y, but more willing to go out in the field version of the character that we get in Zero Year. You know, you said that this was uh, you know, a wink and a nod and Snyder trying to do something a little cute. I, I think to me, it speaks to the extraness of the whole thing. Like, again, we, we mentioned this earlier, uh, too much content, too many tangents would have been better with some editing. And that's one of those things where cut this out or reframe it or do something a little bit different, make the story stronger. I had an idea that was connected to that, but then it left me. So I wonder if it's by you saying that it it popped something into my head that got me about this, that this, the first part of this story is the first appearance of Duke Thomas as a little, as a young kid and Duke shows up there and then Duke comes in at the end, but the middle bits, there's a bunch of Harper Rowe. And then Harper just sort of disappears. And then Duke becomes the kid. And it's like, did we need them both? Couldn't we have spent some more time with either Duke early on or kept Harper going through this or had them both? I mean, there's a lot going on, but it just seems like, okay, we're going to replace one character with another because because I have plans for both of these characters and I kind of need them both to show up, but it's kind of awkward and an, an odd bit where they're kind of one disappears and the other pops up because I didn't want to deal with writing both of them at the same time. That's hard. Doing, doing multiple things at once is difficult, you know? Um, I, I remember what I was going to say. Uh, you, you mentioned um, the art here. One thing that has bugged me consistently in in looking back over Snyder's run, I don't like Bruce. Mm. I just visually it strikes me as weird. He looks 
especially in in the zero year where it was supposed to be a flashback, but it's only, you know, six years ago. It's not, you know, when Bruce was 15, he looks way too young and too soft and too weird with the, the high and tight. I'm just like, I don't, I don't like any of this visually. Both year one and zero year established that he's 25, which is fine. But I mean, I've done some math and if DC, you know, if for years it was like, he's not quite 40 for that to work. He has to be younger in these early stories. He has to be closer to 21 than 25 when he comes back to Gotham for him to not be pushing 50 now with how Dick and Jason and Tim have aged. And that's a a weird piddling thing. And someday y'all might get some bonus content with me discussing the, my my formula for establishing what Bruce Wayne's age is based on the ages of the Robins. Because it's the only way to judge. And it's, it's nonsense, but it's my nonsense. If if we cut Bruce Wayne in half, we can count the number of Robins inside. (laughs) But yeah, that's, you, you, you mentioned rebirth, uh, and Snyder being, uh, you know, the, the focus of that for Batman. That looking back on it, that strikes me as the weirdest thing. Like this being soft reboot and Batman number one with Scott Snyder. All of the stuff has still taken place. You know, Bruce has already gone through, you know, X number of Robins in that five years. That doesn't make any sense. No. But they don't talk about that. No, they avoid it. Because, and then when you look at how hard the reboot was on Superman and Wonder Woman and Flash and how soft it is on Batman and Green Lantern. And that's a, a lot of that has to do with the fact that I think the creators involved, Snyder had just finished a year on Detective and wanted to keep playing with some of the threads there. Jeff Johns had been writing Green Lantern for frickin' ever at that point and was finishing his arc. But Morrison, they clearly wanted to start from scratch. Brian Azzarello continuity and Brian Azzarello when he's writing superhero stuff has never been friends so he was perfectly happy to start Wonder Woman from scratch and I assume the same was true for Bucoletto and Manipool on Flash and on Aquaman as well I mean John's Aquaman is also pretty much a a hard much harder reboot but yeah the, the Robins are a real weird thing that was that's a simple well, all four of these characters are popular and we want to have them all either in their own books or headlining a team book. So we can't get rid of any of them. So we'll just say he goes through a Robin, a year, <laughs> which is all manner of problematic. It's a very demanding job. No argument there, no matter how many years you're doing it. And this, the mortality rate is not in favor of your Robins. Um, so again, this is a year-long story, so we could, there's a whole bunch of other things we could touch on, but I think we're ready to say that this one will drop in at number two behind year one. It's the only place we could put it. Yep. Now, we've, we've gone probably a little long. We're, we're still getting used to, to this model, but fortunately, our last story is real short, and there's there's not a a great ton of 
content that's going to be there. This is the case of the chemical syndicate, the very first Batman story from Detective Comics 27. Uh, writer here is Bill Finger. The artist is Bob Kane and the editor is Vincent Sullivan. Again, kind of going back to something about uh, problematic creators. Yeah, Bob Kane, not a great guy. Bob Kane was a clever guy when it came to how he set up his contracts with DC. Uh, the fact that he hogged the credit for the creation of Batman and all those characters for decades, despite, despite the fact that Bill Finger and Jerry Robinson were the ones who created a lot of them. And that Kane, if you read your comic history that isn't his autobiography, it's full of a lot of self-aggrandizing stuff. That autobiography uh, indicates that he tended to trace and was not great to work with, but he was still there and we have to address that. Uh, the Case of the Chemical Syndicate is a really simple story. It's six pages long versus, you know, the last one we did, which was 12. It is very much Batman. Is, Bruce Wayne is hanging out with Jim Gordon. Jim Gordon mentions that a wealthy chemical magnate named Lambert has been killed. Bruce goes off with Jim Gordon. They look at the crime. Bruce leaves the room. Lambert has three other partners. The Batman, which is hyphenated here uh, and always in quotes, investigates, finds one of them murdered, goes to find the third, finds that the fourth partner, Stryker's assistant, has just knocked him out and has put him into a death trap. Batman saves him, knocks out Stryker's assistant. It turns out Stryker's assistant was working for Stryker, who is the one behind it all. Uh, Bruce punches Stryker into a vat of chemicals that kills him. On the final panel, it is revealed that Bruce Wayne is Batman. That's the entirety of the story. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a real shock when it's you, if you are a person of the time and have seen uh, the Mark of Zorro or have listened to the Shadow or read any of the pulps, the uh, Playboy who turns out to be the vigilante is not an original concept. I mean, again, this isn't a bad story. It's very by the numbers. It's it's a shadow story, much more than a Batman story. For the folks of you, or the, the folks out there, those of you who haven't read some of these earlier comics, and don't don't feel don't feel bad if you haven't. If I wasn't doing this comic writing and or comic podcasting gig, I don't know that I would have cracked open Detective Comics twenty seven. Uh, these comics are very different in that it is exposition from panel to panel to panel to panel to panel. It is, it's, it's almost like improv in that it's yes. And yes. And yes. And it's constant movement in the story. And these could be easily serialized in a newspaper strip. Like that's more what these are than, you know, your, your contemporary modern comics. And so it's hard to judge it in that context, but I'll say a couple of things going back to year one really quickly. Uh, you know, you mentioned like the, the trope of Bruce Wayne and the Playboy. Man, I loved, I loved Bruce Wayne's appearance in, in year one as just being a sleaze bag, a total dirt bag. It's like, oh, oh, my date here, she doesn't even speak English. 
uh, let's have champagne at uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. Let's get drunk. And, you know, Barbara and, and Jim are there and like, oh, we're, we're fine. We don't drink at, you know, at 10 a.m. or whatever. Um, but another thing I wanted to go back to in talking about uh, the re- relationship between Bob Kane and Bill Finger, I read Denny O'Neill's introduction in this edition of Year Zero, or excuse me, uh, Year One. It's from March 1988, and he credits Batman's creators as Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Why the hell did it take DC so long to get on board when O'Neill himself is writing this in 1988? Well, in all fairness, O'Neill was a mensch. O'Neill was a hardcore 60s hippie who was a... He's a great guy. I can't wait for us to cover some Denny O'Neill because I love Denny O'Neill's work. And I met him once and he was a great guy. It really, really really nice guy but he he was the kind of guy who would have been all about you know giving credit where credit is due and he could do that because he didn't have to worry about the lawyers but also <laughs> because he was a good guy but yeah it's uh yeah it, it's it took dc way too long to add that with bill finger to everything just way too long and getting back to uh the substance of this story um, I'll say this is obviously going to be number three <laughs> for another thing I'm eventually going to do. Uh, I read a ton of Brenda Starr uh, and Brenda Starr is a contemporary comic of, of 1940. So about the same period, about the same style. You know, she plays this hard charging reporter um, very much in the vein of Lois Lane, slightly after her, but you know, no less bold and intrepid. And I found Brenda Starr much more readable than this. So no offense, um, uh, Bill, uh, because we do love you. I'm not sure that Detective Comics 27 is a good example of the comics of the period. Fingers, Batman stuff will get better. Uh, I've read a, I've read most of the first year of first year or two in one of those big beautiful archives that dc used to do uh of detective and batman uh and i mean the finger stuff gets considerably better but this this is very much a paint by numbers is it it's a it's a shadow story it's not really a batman story yet there aren't any of the hallmarks of a batman story outside of the costume and i'm not even talking about the killing I mean, that, that's right there. But Batman continues to be to kill guys through Batman number one, at least. I can't remember if he's killing people after that. And a friend of mine last week, we were talking about superheroes and about comics after our weekly game night. But he was asking me, he was asking me about, you know, how I felt about Zack Snyder's Batman from BVS. The fact that he's walking around with freaking automatic weapons. And and it was like, well, I, I mean, I was like, I don't like it. I mean, Batman doesn't kill it. And Vince just playing devil's advocate because he agreed with me. He's like, well, you know, you know, I've been a Batman killed in those early stories. I'm like, yeah, but that wasn't a fully formed Batman yet. That was a lot of tryout stories. It's like judging any television series on the pilot. The pilot mm-hmm. versions of a lot of characters, even if it's a, in some cases, it's a different freaking actor. 
But even if you remove that, they're not a fully farmed version of that character. And you have to kind of look at those early stories where he's shooting the Hugo Strange's monster men with a machine gun in the Batplane as something that was still being worked out. And it has become an integral part of the character that Batman doesn't kill. Even Miller's much more hard, noir Batman in year one goes out of his way to protect life. It's part of, and has become an integral part of that character. And just because it wasn't there in the first story doesn't make that interpretation of the character valid, nor does it validate throwing out everything but those early stories because that was that was what the founders intended oh <laughs> uh, let's let's not get into constitutional construction here yes um, we could avoid that <laughs> but but no i i think it is an interesting read i wouldn't call it a critical read especially because as you say it doesn't have any of those signature bat things uh, they would come, but uh, you know it's a good look at the the earliest character design, which more or less has been pretty consistent, surprisingly. Yeah, I mean you you you, know, you add the yellow oval, you remove the purple gloves, and you make the ears a little different. It's pretty much the same. I mean, it's changed much less drastically than Superman or Wonder Woman have, to be sure, and. I mean, Flash and Green Lantern were completely different characters with wacky costumes. You know, I love Jay Garrick, but walking around with the uh, World War One era helmet, it, it that sucker'd fly right off. Sorry, <laughs> love you, Jay, but I, you you must have spent a lot of time, you know, concentrating and keeping that thing on your head. Speed Force man does incredible things. It, it absolutely does. So. That and I think I mean Will said it, but it has, this is number three on the list. So, yeah, looks like we have now reached the end of our first episode. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'll be setting up a Patreon soon with some fun tiers, including shoutouts on the show, getting to pick the tentpole story an episode will be built around, and some bonus episodes. If you want to hear more of my ramblings mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and my cats. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And me at Will Nevin. Uh, and be sure to visit Comics XF uh, for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat books uh, and all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And you can follow Comics XF on Twitter at Comics XF. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.